Well, the past few weeks, let's say past few weeks, I don't know if y'all realize, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, today is the 14th part of our study in the book of Revelation. And in among that 14 weeks we've spent in the book of Revelation, we've had Mother's Day and Father's Day. So it's been 16 weeks since we started this. Anybody been here since the beginning? Anybody here week one? You, everybody, you all remember, I trust, everything that was said week one of the book of Revelation, right? I'm not going to give you a quiz because I don't remember. But it's in there. You can go watch it on YouTube. Uh, well, a few weeks ago, we put out these little cards in the back of the room, questions about Revelation. And uh, I said we would go over some of these questions. This is uh, uh, the, assemblage, uh, the assemblage of the question. We have six questions that were asked back on some of these cards. And I'm going to read them and uh, give you an answer to the best of my ability. Uh, but one of the questions was, will we be here on earth for the tribulation? Uh, there's many different views on that. Uh, uh, there's a couple uh, key ones. Uh, some believe uh, in what is called the rapture uh, from uh, Thessalonians uh, in the fact that the church itself is not mentioned for the majority of the book of Revelation, uh, that the Christians will not be here when things get real difficult. Um, there will be Christians here because we read about it being illegal to be a Christian at that point, um, but it is believed by uh, those who, who follow that line of thinking that it will pe be people who come to know Christ during the period of the tribulation. Um, so if you follow that group and, and believe that the rapture will take the church away and then the tribulation will occur and then those who are still here at that time, uh, uh, the Christians who come to know Christ during that time uh, will endure that. Uh, there's another group that believe that uh, the tribulation is symbolic in being seven years, the great tribulation, the hardest part being three and a half years, that that symbolic meaning a period of time and that we're experiencing some of that now. Um, and so if you follow that line of thinking, then yes, we are here during that. Uh, but it's whichever way you lean on those thinking. Scripture isn't clear. It doesn't outright say, list point by point, this is what it's going to look like. Uh, but you can think either way and be totally fine. And so another question is, if we are here for the tribulation, will we, will we be living in the queen? That's probably up to you uh, during that time. Uh, you can live here. You can move away from here. It, it probably will depend on, uh, well, the next question is, what will, will we be doing during the tribulation, uh, Christians? Uh, probably where you live will depend a lot on that question. Um, for a period of time, Christians will still be able to have jobs, still be able to go to the store and buy stuff. But Revelation tells us there will come a point that if you're a Christian, you will not be allowed to go to the store and buy stuff. You won't be able to order stuff on Amazon uh, if you're a follower of Jesus. Uh, so it will be illegal to be a follower of Jesus. And so what the best scholars believe during that period of time, Christians living here on earth uh, will, for the most part, be in hiding. Uh, there'll be a black market, we believe, of uh, finding goods and services. Um, maybe having a farm up in the woods somewhere that nobody can find you. Uh, but there'll be a lot of hiding. There'll be a lot of things of that nature. Uh, possibly similar uh, to the countries that the Nazis took over 
and some of the people would hide Jews in their house. It may be similar to that with Christians. Uh, or it may be entirely antagonistic to Christians and everybody's going to hate their guts. Um, however it plays out, where Christians are living during that time probably will be uh, dependent upon how they feel the Lord leading them. Um, because at that point in time, there's not going to be any lukewarm Christians. You're either in or you're out. Because if you're wishy-washy, it's going to be easy to stop following Jesus passionately. Because if you follow Jesus passionately, you're on the hit list and they're coming for you. And so it'll be easy to deny Jesus. There won't be any middle ground. You're either in or you're out when it comes to following Jesus. And so what we, will we be doing during the tribulation? Christians for that period of time, I think uh, a lot of it will be hiding. Um, the Lord will protect them. Uh, uh, but it will still be illegal. Christians will still be being executed during that period of time. There's another question. Will there be different size mansions in heaven? Scripture talks about God, uh, Jesus, in, in John 14, going to prepare a place for us. And some translations talk about preparation of the place he's going being mansions. Mansions he's preparing for us. I believe that's more figurative, that it means uh, something that is super special, uh, that is beyond our imagining in its niceness, uh, in its excess, in its abundance. Um, there will, I mean, Scripture does tell us there will be uh, different crowns that we will receive based upon what we have done for the Lord, not to walk around heaven with the crown on and say, man, look how good I was in my life but to offer it back to Jesus. People aren't going to be walking around with crowns because we've given them all to Jesus. And so when it comes to where we live, the, the, the houses or, or, or whatever capacity he has for us there, it won't be necessarily size comparison of one house over another. We won't be on heaven Instagram comparing, you know, somebody's kitchen reno. Uh, it won't be any of that because we won't, you know, have envy. We won't be jealous of what somebody else has. We'll be all about Jesus. And so whatever he has prepared for us, we'll be perfectly content with it because it was handcrafted by the Son of God. Will we have the same body in heaven? No. Amen? That was kind of a lackluster amen. Some of y'all like your bodies too much, I guess. Uh, no more pain. No, I mean, Jared talked about it last week. No more death. No more sickness. In heaven, we'll get a new body, a body that doesn't wear out. A body that doesn't wear down. Um, the best we can figure, um, it will be something, look something similar to this. Because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Looking at this world is like looking at heaven through a dirty window. And so it looks something like this, but perfect. So we'll still know each other in heaven. But the bodies we have will be absolutely perfect. No bum knees, no sore backs, no issues with our feet. No headaches, no sinus congestion, no problems of any nature of that sort. We will have new bodies that will last forever. And then the last one, will we still require nourishment, food and water in heaven? You know, will, will our new bodies need food and water like these bodies now do? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us that. Um, it does talk in Revelation about the, the supper of the Lamb, 
you know, there being a supper. Uh, but again, that is, could be figurative, could be il- uh, an illustration. Uh, but our best guess on this one, will there be nourishment in heaven? Will we require nourishment? We can go back to the Garden of Eden. Before sin entered the world, before everything was broken in the world, before uh, uh, the system that God had set up became imperfect, while it was still perfect, Adam and Eve's perfect bodies required food and water before sin broke it all. And if you look at it, Adam and Eve's perfect bodies also, there was sleep before that. We see God putting Adam to sleep. They were asleep before that. Imagine sleep in heaven. Imagine the best sleep you've ever had in your life here on earth. And then imagine sleep in heaven. I mean, I, I'm, I'm watering at the mouth. I'm coming off of youth camp till this afternoon. I'm going to children's camp. I'm thinking, man, I want that heaven sleep. I want, I want that heaven sleep. I don't want that hot cabin. I don't want those ants. I don't want those loud, stinky kids. I want that heaven sleep. But as far as food and water, I would imagine there will be. There will be. But it won't be in the sense of, you know, I'm in desperate need of food. It will be, I can't wait to taste what God has prepared in this world. I mean, we'll have some kind of fruit and stuff like we do here, vegetables. But perfect. The taste will always be perfect. It will be amazing the kind of food we will have, the kind of drink we will have in heaven. Because it will be perfect. And that's the difficulty. We're going to talk about that today in the scripture. The difficulty when, when we try to imagine heaven and heaven being perfect is everything we know here is imperfect. So we don't have a context for perfection. So trying to wrap our head around what heaven's going to look like with absolute perfection, it, it, it would fry our neurons to try to go that deep into that much perfection but it will be perfect we can just rest on what Paul said in 1 Corinthians we look at this world this is what heaven's going to look like but perfect better infinitely better and so those are the six questions we have if you have more questions about the book of Revelation just catch me and ask me and I'll, you know, do my best. I may say, hey, I'll get back to you in like a week. Let me, let me look that one up. Uh, you can ask Jared, and, and he's so smart, he'll just pop it right off. Right, J- <laughs> uh, We'll look it up. That's, that's the best we can do is, is we'll promise. We'll look it up and uh, get back to you on that if you have questions about the book of Revelation. But flip with me to the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. It's on page 1041, if you're using a Bible in the pew rack. You see, we get here to the book of Revelation, and as we've seen these last number of weeks, John the Apostle wrote this down. He's the last apostle alive. He was on the hit list of the Roman government because he was preaching about Jesus. He was a pastor at the time. We believe in his early 90s. They came in. They arrested him for preaching about Jesus. They took him to kill him. They tried to kill him. The, the history tells us they put him in, I mean, again, not scripture, but, but church history tells us they slowly lowered him in the Colosseum into a vat of boiling oil. And then they dropped the vat and turned it over to see his charred body, and John walked out, is what church history tells us. 
And so they put John on an unkillable list and they exiled him to this prison island. And it's on this prison island that Jesus shows up and gives John a vision. It's called the Revelation. Now imagine too, being John, one of Jesus' original 12, you haven't seen Jesus for decades and decades and decades. And he's there on the island thinking it's all over. And then Jesus, his friend, Jesus, his savior, shows up. One, it says one Sunday when John is worshiping, Jesus just appears there in front of him and tells John, I'm going to give you a message for all the Christians in the world, and then I'm going to show you a vision about the end of everything. And I want you to write it all down for the Christians in the future to read and have their lives changed by it. And so John undertakes that. He writes about all the devastation to come, and then he writes about Christians being taken and judged by God, but not judged by what they did. Christians are judged by what Jesus did because his doing, his death and resurrection paid for our sins. But then everyone who rejects Jesus is taken and judged based on what they did and punished accordingly. And then in chapter 21 that Jared talked about last week, heaven and earth are renewed. The heaven and earth that we know now disappear in chapter 20 because God shows up in his full glory and it's obliterated. No more broken earth. No more decaying earth. And in chapter 21, a new heaven and new earth come down. It's called the new Jerusalem. It's called the perfect city. It's this, again, the best we can figure, this massive heaven-type planet thing. And that's where we're going to be. That's where we're going to reside. And it comes down in absolute perfection, and God is there physically with his people. So that's where we get in Revelation chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So a couple of things in the imagery here. You've got the throne of God, and Jesus is sitting on it with God, because Jesus is God. And you've got this river of life flowing from the throne. It's coming out of the throne. This is an image uh, from an Old Testament prophecy, Ezekiel chapter 47. You've got this river coming from the throne, and in the middle of the river, on both sides of the river, this massive tree, it's called the tree of life, which is a direct reference back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. Because when God made the Garden of Eden, he put in that garden this tree, the tree of life, that anyone who eats the fruit of this tree will have eternal life, life forever. So that when Adam and Eve sinned, God put a guard in front of the Garden of Eden until the garden was destroyed in the flood, uh, a guard there to prevent humanity from coming to take of the fruit of that tree of life. But now the tree, it's got no guard. It's just right there in the middle of the city, right there in the middle of the world. Anybody can come up and take fruit. Any believer can walk up and just take fruit. And look at what it says. It says it yields its fruit each month. So at harvest time is every month. There's not a season of harvest time. It's always harvest time. It yields its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree, now this is very interesting. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And if you read that phrase, you might be thinking, okay, hang on a sec, preacher man. In the last chapter, it said that there's no more sickness or pain or death. 
So what do we need to be healed from? If the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, what do we need to be healed from if, if this tree of life provides healing? Well, the phrase there, healing, uh, most likely means uh, health giving. Health giving. So this eternal life we're going to have, taking of the fruit of the tree of life, is going to be healthy. It's going to be generous. It's going to be abundant. It's going to be waking up every day, bounding out of your bed, feeling amazing with no aches and pains, feeling amazing, not like you're trying to hit the snooze button and gain an extra five minutes. It's going to feel amazing because it's not just a a life that's going to go on and on and on. It's going to be a healthy life. Now, again, as I said a second ago, that's something we don't have context for. You can say, oh, I feel healthy. But then you start listing off 15 aches and pains you got. Or how many people in here know, let me phrase it this way, is there anyone in the room who doesn't know one person who has any kind of ailments? Anybody know somebody who's 100% healthy? 100%. Just checking. See if there's any liars in the room. All right, we're good. Okay. It says that there will be a healthy life, completely healthy for everybody in this time. Look at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So no more curse. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, the curse fell on the world and broke the perfection. And so this says, there's not going to be a curse anymore. There's not going to be any more brokenness. There's not going to be any more of that stuff that's a result of the the brokenness. So no more death. Now let's have our minds blown. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That name on the foreheads has been throughout the book of Revelation. That is not necessarily physically have a tattoo of, you know, gods on your forehead. It is a sign of ownership of allegiance of loyalty of association but it's also out there for everybody to see so how you live your life is a declaration that you belong to God and so at this time that's what's going on but here's the the thing that is mind-boggling we will be able to look God full in the face that's where the new body comes in we're going to get some new eyeballs that God will provide the opportunity and ability to look at him in the face and that is something that has never been done before. Actually, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 33, God said, no man can look at God and live. It's impossible. That was a request Moses made of God. And God said, okay, I'm going to put you in a mountain so the mountain protects you, and then I'm going to put my hand in front of you to protect you, and I'm going to walk by. And you can just look at my back. You can just get the residual glory. And it's not God's full glory because in the last chapter or two chapters ago, God showed up in full glory and earth was obliterated. He said, this is just a, just a, a snippet of my glory. And Moses, having seen that, protected by the mountain, protected by God's hand, only getting a snippet of God's glory, his whole body glowed for weeks just getting that tiny bit of God's glory. And so this is what this is saying. Now with our new bodies and new heaven and earth, we're going to be able to look God full in the face without protection and experience God's glory in that capacity. It's going to be something that we have never seen or experienced. Imagine the most spiritual experience you've ever had in your life. 
feeling God's presence, hearing God speak. You're getting the goosebumps. And now multiply that by a bajillion. Because it's not just a sense anymore. You're seeing him physically, just like you're seeing me standing here. You're seeing him, God, right there in front of you. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So the words are trustworthy. This is a declaration. This is absolutely going to happen. Uh, The same God today was the God who spoke through the prophets of the past. God is always the same. He never changes. And he sent his angel to show us all, his servants. Now, that's a key word. It's going to be said again. What this means is we're going to still be serving God in heaven, in the new heaven, earth, new Jerusalem, the great city. We're still going to be serving God. We're still going to be doing stuff. That doesn't mean we're going to be singing 24-7 for infinity. Maybe you want to. Maybe that's all you. Uh, But I believe we're going to have jobs in heaven to serve him and glorify him as our jobs here were intended to be. Glorifying him in everything we do. Now, there won't be, we won't need every job. Like in heaven, there won't be funeral directors. So I don't know if that was your aspiration, but in heaven, they won't need funeral directors. Uh, There'll be things like that that won't be needed anymore. But we still will be, he says, their servants. We still will be serving God in heaven. But what's interesting in this verse, this word is said over and over and over again throughout Scripture, but especially in Revelation. Right there in that verse, what must soon take place. Soon take place. It's like, it almost feels like when you're a kid and you go to your parents and you ask for something and they say maybe. That's not them saying no, really that's them putting off, you know, your timing. You don't want to give give away the parent handbook there, kids, but... (laughs) But he says, this must soon take place. That is a, not a specific indication of time. It's a prophetic word. It's coming. And the idea is, it's supposed to create within us Christians reading this a sense of urgency. It could happen today. There was a group of Christians who lived here in America a number of years ago. Who they would wake up every morning and look to the east and say, maybe today he's coming. There's a great book you should all read. Write it down. It's called Safely Home. It's about a Christian it's, it's fictional. Uh, it's about a Christian in the underground church in China who would wake up every day and say, maybe today, Jesus. Not necessarily maybe today Jesus is coming. Maybe today I go home and meet my Jesus. The idea. Maybe today. That's the idea of this soon. Maybe today it's going to happen. And we should live as though it will. But in actuality, we live as though it's not happening today. We don't wake up in the morning, most of us, I would guarantee almost all of us, thinking, first thought pops in our head, maybe today Jesus is coming. No, we're running through our Walmart list. We're running through the stuff on our agenda. We're running through our aches and pains. We're running through our problems. We're trying to get our kids wrangled. We're trying to do this, that, and the other thing. The last thing on our mind is this soon word. But the, the purpose in what he's saying is this is soon. This is coming. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, it should always be front of mind. It's about to happen. We need to act like it's about to happen. Keep going about our jobs and our lives and our kids and our families, but act in the midst of all of that as though it's going to happen today with that sense of urgency. Verse 7, 
Jesus speaks. He hadn't spoken in the book of Revelation in a while. He says, behold, I am coming soon. There's that word again. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So everything written in the book of Revelation, that's what he's talking about. Everything written in the book of Revelation, he says, blessed are you if you keep the words. That means the purpose of the words. The purpose of the words is supposed to drive us to tell more people about Jesus. So that people don't have to experience this destruction and devastation and judgment. He says, blessed is the one who keeps the words. Blessed is the one who tells people about Jesus so they don't have to experience this. Blessed are they who keep these words and, and, and follow Jesus through it all. Blessed is that one. Verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Now, this is a, almost like a legal testimony. John is saying, I am putting my name on this. I testify everything I saw and have written down actually happened in my vision, in my prophetic vision of the end times. He says, I, 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 I'm saying this actually did happen. And he puts it down and sends it to the church, the Christians. I tell you, we've gotten a lot of unsigned notes at church but in the past. But John is not leaving this unsigned. He's testifying, I've written it and I declare it as true. And then John gets overwhelmed by, by the spirit and overwhelmed by the emotion of the moment. And he falls down and he worships the angel. And John's done this before. Back in chapter 19, he fell down and worshiped the angel. And the angel rebuked him. And he does it again here in verse 9. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, this is similar to what he said before with, with a slight alteration. The angel says, I am a fellow servant. So he says, you, John, follower of Jesus, are the same as me. We're both servants of God. And then he says, along with your brothers, the prophets. So he puts all the prophets in the same boat as John and as the angels. Prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Prophets like Jeremiah and, and Zechariah. Prophets of the Old Testament. He puts them all together. John the Baptist puts them all and says, they're just like you, serving God, just like us, angels. And not only that, he adds a new category, along with those who keep the words of this book. Christians who are out there telling people about Jesus, he says, you are the same as all these others. Same as the angels serving God, same as the prophets of old, same as John, the revelator, writing all this down. He says, we're all on the same level. Nobody's above anybody else because we're just servants of God. So don't be pedestal putters and putting people on pedestals. We're servants of God all together, working alongside him to accomplish his goal and his purpose. And then the angel, as though he's yelling at him, so only worship God. Don't put your attention on all these other things. Worship, this is totally aside, not in my notes. Worship is not just music. Music can be worship. Worship has to do with the attention and the affection that we give an individual or a thing. If we dedicate the vast majority of our money to one thing, we're worshiping that thing. If we dedicate the vast majority of our thought processes to one thing, we're worshiping that thing. More than Jesus. Have you, now don't raise your hand. 
Have you ever been binge watching a show over a period of days or weeks and you just can't wait to get back and watch the next episode? You just can't wait to get back and see what happens next. That last one was a cliffhanger and you just can't wait to get back and see what happens next. I can't think of a show right now that, that has me wrapped up, but I remember back in the day, anybody ever watched the show 24? Way back when, Jack Bauer? Come on, people. Man, that show would end, that clock be ticking down, and if you watched it, you know that sound that, I can't even mimic that sound now, but it, it, it would end on a cliffhanger, and you're like, what? I gotta wait a week for this? Now, I know y'all don't have context for waiting a week for a TV show, but you, I gotta wait a week to see what happens on the next thing? It would consume that whole, everybody's talking about it. Man, Jack Bauer did this, and now he's in this tight spot, and the president's about to get killed, and these terrorists are coming in. I don't know how he's going to save the day. And the next week, Jack Bauer shows up and, you know, just takes out a million terrorists. But you, you know, it's one of those things you're like, how in the world are they going to get out of this? It consumes your every thought. And when you're in the midst of something like that, you're worshiping the thing. Maybe you're consumed with money, and your every thought is, how are we going to get money? How can we get more money? How can we save more money? How can we do this with that money? If I only had this money, I would do that. If only I'd, and you've been maybe you're arguing with yourself about buying that lottery ticket. I know we're not supposed to buy lottery tickets, but man, I am. If I just had that money, I would give so much to the church. We're not going to turn down your money, you give it to the church. But I'm just saying, you would, it's like you're trying to, to convince God to give it to you. But then you're worshiping the thing because it's consuming your mind and consuming your heart. He says, worship God. Nothing else is worthy of your worship. If there's anything standing in the way of you and God, cut it off. I heard an interview this week by Rick Warren, uh, founder of Saddleback Church, wrote Purpose Driven Life. You ever read Purpose Driven Life? Second, most, second highest selling book of all time behind the Bible. And he was saying in that, he was being asked by the interviewer, because Rick Warren, the story has gone around, that he reversed tithes. He lives off of 10%, well now it's not, he lives off of 9% and he gives uh, uh, 91% back to the church. He said, man, it must be nice, have the second highest selling book of all time. Yeah, I can give, if God gave me that, I could do that. Well, Rick Warren said something interesting in this interview. He said, before I sold one copy of Purpose Driven Life, he said, my wife and I made a commitment to raise our tithe every year. He said, the first year we got married, we got 10%. Next year, 11. Next year, 12. He said, some years we only went up by like 0.08%. He said, but every year we raised it. He said, by the time I got a contract for Purpose Driven Life, this is what blew my mind. He said, we were already tithing 60%. He was not making much. At that time. He said now Purpose Driven Life still sells at least a million copies every year. But back then it was nothing. He wasn't writing big old fat books. His church wasn't massive. And by then he was already tithing 60%. Because he was, he said, but what his statement was, I had to do it. Because if I didn't raise that tithe every year, I was worshiping the money. I was thinking what I could do with the money. He says, what that was doing is that was crippling my heart from worshiping the money. He said, it forced me to trust God. And he said, I know my heart, and I had to do that. Otherwise, I would be all about it. And so here he says, 
Worship God. Worship God only, period. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of this book, for the time is near. So leave it open for everybody to read. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now you read that verse, and you're thinking, man, that's kind of weird, angel man. Angel saying, let the evildoer keep doing evil stuff, and the filthy people still being filthy people. Like, that doesn't sound very, you know, God-like. But the idea in that verse is that God, Jesus is going to come so quick, there won't be time to change. That when Jesus shows up, there's no second chances. There are some people who believe that there's a class of people who will get a second chance after they die to get to know Jesus. That's not in Scripture. Scripture tells us we have a chance to know Jesus here on earth. But when we die, that chance is gone. And we've rejected him and turned our backs on him. And so we have ample opportunity to know Jesus now. But he's going to come so fast and so quick, we won't have time to change. So the time to change is now. And so if the righteous, that's Christians, if the holy, those who who have believed in Jesus, have their sins wiped away, if we will go out and tell people about Jesus now, they can change now because they won't be able to change then. They can know Jesus now. So that they won't have to go through all this stuff in the book of Revelation. They can know Jesus now so they can experience heaven. And so it's on us. If we're righteous, then we'll still do right and we'll tell people about Jesus. If we're holy, if we know Jesus, then we'll tell people about him. He says, you got to get up and you got to do it. That's why he says in the previous verse, don't seal any of this up. So that the Christians can get the message, get the purpose, and tell people about Jesus. And get out there and do it. And then in verse 12, Jesus speaks up again. He says, behold, I am coming soon. Same thing he said before. He says, bringing my recompense, that's judgment, with me to repay each one for what he has done. So everyone, as we said a minute ago, who does not believe in Jesus will be judged based upon what he has done. But everyone who does believe in Jesus will, rec- will, be, uh, will receive a judgment based upon what Jesus did. And so if you do believe in Jesus, you've got nothing in your ledger. According to the, to the books that are piled up with the record of what everybody has done, your page is blank because Jesus paid for your sins. But not everybody has that because Scripture also tells us the vast majority of people in this earth do not know Jesus. In every generation, the vast majority of the people on the planet do not know Jesus And so as we read in the book of Hebrews, we've been handed the baton right now for such a time as this to tell as many people as we possibly can about Jesus. That's why we're here. We're not here to work and make a bunch of money and leave it all to our kids and dote on our grandkids when we're retired. We're here to tell people about Jesus. End of the sentence. That's why we're here above all else. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, that's the beginning of the alphabet and the end of the alphabet. He says, I was there when everything started, and I'll be there when all of it ends and the new heaven and earth come in. He says, I always am. That's why in the Old Testament, when God came to Moses in the burning bush and told him to go back to to free the Israelites and bring them out of Egypt, and Moses said to God, What's your name? What shall I tell the people? Who sent me? And God said, tell them I am 
sent you. That's saying, God is saying, you tell them just I am. I always have been, not I was, not I will be, I just am. It's the difference between us having eternal life and God being eternal. You see, because eternal life has a beginning and no end. Being eternal has no beginning and no end, it just always is. So God always is. Jesus is saying, I always am. You only know what started and what ended. I have always been. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. People who wash their robes, this is a reference to something back earlier in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. It talked about, these are Christians, uh, their robes, their, their clothing, their attire uh, is no longer covered in dirty mess, sin. It's been, you ever heard the phrase washed in the blood of the lamb? That's the idea here. Jesus' death and resurrection paid for our sins, and so we walk in purity now. And so these are Christians. Blessed are they who are believers. We can walk right up to the tree of life and have eternity. Uh, eternal life. However, there are those who are not like that. There are those who reject Jesus and the gospel and chase after other things instead. Verse 15. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now dogs, these are, they were in that day and time looked down upon. Uh, they were street roving scavengers. And so he's saying people who pursue things other than Jesus, who reject the gospel and pursue other stuff, are like that, like street roving scavengers, and they refuse to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean somebody who, who does one of these things. There, there's sin lists throughout the New Testament. If you've ever done one of these things, that doesn't mean you're never going to heaven. What is being said here and in every other sin list in the New Testament is, like I said a second ago, these are people who have absolutely been given the gospel and said, no, I'm going to chase this stuff. I don't want Jesus. And so I'm going to live how I want to live. Sorcerers, people who pursue that kind, of, that kind of stuff. Sexually immoral, murderers. You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you hate someone in your heart, you have murdered him. So people who have hate. Idolaters, people who are worshiping other things, like the angel told us a minute ago, worship only God. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood, chases after manipulations and deceptions and uses them themselves. But I want to, there's, there's an aside, it's, one, it's in my notes either. But that word sexually immoral, this word has a very specific meaning in the original language. Jesus used this word in Matthew 15 and Matthew 19. Some people will say Jesus didn't say anything on the subject of sexual immorality. Well, he did. Because what that word means in the original language is any kind of sexual activity outside of a man and woman marriage relationship. That's what that word means. Any kind of sexual activity outside of a man and woman marriage relationship. That's all-encompassing. That's all-encompassing. That's very applicable for our culture today. And Jesus talked about this. Like I said, Matthew 15 and Matthew 19. No equivocation. And so rejecting the gospel in pursuit 
of sin leads to a very sad eternity. Which is also why this should drive us with all kinds of passion to tell people about Jesus. Jesus loves everybody irregardless of people who are habitually doing these things. Jesus loves everybody. John 3.16, Jesus loves the world. It doesn't say, for God so loved just Christians. It says, for God so loved the world. That's everybody before they know Jesus that he came and died so they could know Jesus. And so it's on us to bring them Jesus. And so this is put here in, in chapter in verse 15 to try to drive a, there's people out there who are pursuing things other than Jesus. So Christians, get out there and tell them about Jesus. They're outside. They're not inside. Bring them in. Bring them in. Don't sit up in your holy huddles. Don't sit up on the, on, on, on the comfortable Christian couch. Go and get them and bring them to Jesus. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So the descendant of David, that, that is a title for the Messiah, for the Son of God. He says, I'm the root. I started the line, the, the ancestral line of David. I created it. He said, and I'm the fulfillment of it. I am the bright morning star. I am the Son of God. Verse 17, the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's Christians, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I love this verse. This is the Spirit and the Christians, the Holy Spirit and the Christians, in united purpose, inviting everyone in the world to come to Jesus. It says everyone who's thirsty, everyone who needs hope, everyone who needs help, everyone who is alone, everyone who needs strength, everyone who needs peace, everyone who needs salvation, the Spirit and the Christians together say, come to Jesus. And find eternal life. Take of the water of life without price. Jesus died to pay the price. It's free if we just believe. Believe in Jesus. And then we get a warning in these next two verses. Warning about the book of Revelation. About how we handle the book of Revelation. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Now, again, what's the purpose of this prophecy? For people to come to know Jesus, for the gospel. Anyone adds to the words of this, anyone who adds anything to the gospel, you can believe in Jesus and do X, Y, and Z. He says, you're going to be cursed by God. Verse 19, not only those who add... And if anyone takes away the words from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So if you take away from the words of this book, from the purpose of this book in bringing people to Jesus, for if you take away elements of the gospel, what John is saying is you're probably not a Christian. If you're saying there's any other way to heaven except belief in Jesus alone. John is saying, in scripture, then your name's probably not written down in the book of life because you don't really believe yourself. You know, Christians had a big business meeting about this back in Acts chapter 15. What was necessary for salvation? Simon Peter spoke. Paul spoke. 
James, the brother of Jesus, who's the pastor of the Christian church in Jerusalem, he stood up and said, we need to make it as easy as possible for people to come to Jesus. Only thing necessary is faith, nothing else. Because they were requiring a bunch of extra stuff to be a Christian. They said, you guys are messed up. It's only about Jesus. And so that's what John is saying here. And then here we are, last two verses. This is, you say, preacher, you haven't given us any points yet. It's right here. Last two verses. He who testifies about these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I want to point out about that word amen. It's twice in the last two verses. Now, interesting thing about the word amen, it's not an English word. What they did is they took the Greek word amen, or amen, and they just, you know, took the nearest equivalent English letters and wrote it down. So if you say amen, you're speaking Greek. Congratulations. What it really means is it is a statement of affirmation. It's a declaration of trust. It's as though we're saying, let it happen as God sees fit. Let it happen as God sees fit. So like when we say it at the end of a prayer, we'll say a prayer, and at the end we'll say amen. We're saying, but whatever happens, may it happen as God sees fit. Amen. May it happen as God wants it to happen. I declare that I absolutely trust in whatever God's going to bring. Let it happen. Amen. There are similar statements all throughout the Gospels. Matthew chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's the idea of amen. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or as Mary said, when the angel came and said, you're going to have the Son of God, and she said, may it be to me as you have said. Same ideas, amen. Or when Jesus, kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, not my will, but yours be done. That's the idea of amen. Amen, not my will, but yours be done. Let it happen. May it be to me, as you have said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, may my life be what you want. Amen. Even when I don't have all the information, even when I have no idea what, why this is happening, when I don't understand anything, even when I'm not in control of the situation, even though, God, I'm trying to wrestle control away from you, I will say amen. Let it happen. Even when I feel alone and helpless and hopeless and scared, amen, let it happen to me as you see fit, God, because I trust you. I trust you and what you want to do. Not my will, but yours be done. I may be weak as I'm walking through this life, God, but amen. God said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my power is made perfect in weakness. You may feel weak, but I am not, God said. He said, my grace is sufficient. My grace is enough for you to make it through every day. So no matter what we are facing, if we have any faith whatsoever, faith offers an amen. 
Faith offers an amen. Faith offers a declaration of trust. Faith offers not my will but yours be done. Faith offers this affirmation. Let it happen as God sees fit. If we have faith in God, we can offer an amen. Life is hard. Life is difficult. And we don't understand the vast majority of it. But as a follower of Jesus, we can wake up in the morning and say, amen. I'm with God today. I trust him. Today, this thing's difficult, this thing's hard, this thing's frustrating. I don't know how in the world we're going to get through it. But we say, amen. I'll trust you, God. I'll trust you, God. I trust you. I will offer an amen. That's why earlier in the service we sang that song, amen. And here in a minute we're going to sing another song about trusting God. Come what may, it is well with my soul. And we could say, amen. Y'all need to go look up a song called Amen by Larnell Harris. I've been singing it all week long. It'll change your day, I guarantee you. Larnell Harris, amen. YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you get your music, amen. Faith offers an amen. And now looking at that, uh, Tony, jump back to the, the definition of amen there. Looking at this definition of amen, maybe you're looking at that and you're saying, Pastor Josh, I can't offer an amen. Maybe you don't have an amen to offer because you don't yet have faith. You don't yet know Jesus. And so the question for you is, will you believe in Jesus today? Will you believe in Jesus and discover the peace and strength that comes with trusting him? Will you accept the invitation of the book, of uh, of the end of the book of Revelation, of the end of the Bible, last page, last few verses, when the invitation says, come to Jesus? Will you come to Jesus today? Believe Jesus is God's son, that he died so all of your sins would be forgiven, even the ones you're scared to tell people about. He died for those, paying their debt. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you believe in Jesus and follow him, declaring as you go, come what may, amen today.